Hello, welcome to the Open Doors podcast. This is John, one of the pastors of the Open Door Presbyterian Church. And <clears throat> during Lent, we've been recording our sermons. And in addition, we've been recording during worship stories being told by community members. And this is the third story given this past Sunday. Um, and it is by a woman named Rebecca, who is one of our worship leaders and musicians. She and um, her musical partner, Don, uh, have been creating music for The Open Door for about a decade. And Rebecca has quite a story um, to tell about the struggles of being a follower of Jesus and a therapist over the past 10 years. She's learned a lot and has some really beautiful and amazing things to share. Um, So check out the podcast um, and come check out worship on Sunday mornings, 1030 at the Neighborhood Academy. All right, without further ado, school in art therapy and counseling 
and I had completed two years of school and training, and I was looking for a year-long internship to help people in deep trauma and suffering. Somewhere in the interviewing process of actually getting excited about working with victims of domestic violence, child abuse, incest, murder of a loved one, etc., and saying, I could handle it, it hit me. I asked the question again, but this time not with my head, but from deep in my soul. If this degree of suffering exists, then how can God? And that was it. For the first time in my life, I felt like an atheist. I've secured an internship at a domestic violence shelter starting in the fall, but the rest of the summer I walked in and out of the open door of my job with cute preschoolers, feeling like it was possible for God to not exist. I didn't change my mind about my beliefs, but I walked up to communion with arms crossed only for the prayer and not the body and blood. It all felt foreign to me, even though these were the rituals of my whole life. At the end of the summer before beginning my internship placement, I went for a simple walk in Highland Park, and I began to see the fireflies all around me. Something in my whole being felt integrated and whole again. If fireflies exist, then God must. Sounds simple, right? There it is, my story. A summer of doubt, thank you for listening. This next part of my story, I've been wanting to share with all of you for a long time. Over the years, the open door has been a safe place for me when everything of meaning in my life unraveled to a much deeper and longer degree than that summer. Three years later, during the 2015-2016 school year, I was beginning to lose something again. It was my sense of safety in my own body. This is the phenomenon that happens when a person has been exposed to significant and or repeated threat and the body begins going offline to self-protect from further harm. It is called a trauma response. And I knew it was happening because I had read all about it. And I hid it as best I could because I was ashamed. I had not been victimized in any of the ways described in my grad school books. But my seven, eight, and nine-year-old clients had. And it was my job to hold therapeutic space for them whatever that means. I was supposed to make it safe in the therapy room and in our classroom for them to heal from their trauma and feel safe in their little bodies. There were some moments that that seemed to happen, but with limited support and resources, I began to feel like a failure. Just like I cannot change the weather, I learned that I cannot be calm enough to stop hurting children from hurting children. I had been in an emotional support and therapeutic classroom for eight hours a day for about a year at this point in time. I had stayed because I was needed, and I was comforted by the truth that although my kids flipped tables, Christ also flipped tables, and he didn't sin. <laughs> But as holy and set apart as I tried to be in that room, when those loud metal desks hit the floor multiple times a day, it shook me deep inside. I was dreading the next school year, and the end of the summer break 
at the end of the summer break in 2016, I was feeling defeated and not enough as I penned the words to the song Made For More that we often sing here at church. Heal all the things, Lord, for I cannot. Hear all the things, Lord, for I care not. Help all the things, Lord, for I am only me. Tired, torn, and weary, Lord, asking to be free. I stayed at that job for nine more months before finally coming to terms with the unsustainability of the situation. My inability to change a broken system and how it was slowly taking too great a toll on me. During those next nine months, my heart rate continued to skyrocket at least three times per weekday while I used my body to de-escalate the frightened flight and fright neurosystems of many little bodies of color. I called crisis support teams about once a week, and while they took hours to come, I would try to do therapy sessions with one child while the others were destroying the classroom, threatening each other with violence and yelling profanity from the other side of the door. I called the two teachers I worked with my platoon because it was the only metaphor I had for the reality of our days. I only learned recently that a platoon in battle is actually made up of 20 to 50 soldiers. Although there were likely that many adults in the school building, the three of us were often left alone to handle the crises in our classroom because they had become so routine. I learned to compartmentalize to survive. The police car ride to take a child to the psychiatric inpatient unit for becoming a threat to themselves or others felt like the only safe place in my workday. I remember picking up the pieces of another shredded classroom after a long day and asking God, God, where are you now in all of this suffering? While one nine-year-old literally yells to a seven-year-old, your mom is dead, while I'm wedged between them trying to stop the pain, and they continue to both scream death threats for hours. When I hear my own voice scream in panic, stop, just stop. The answer comes gently and softly. That still small voice. I am on the cross. This message was a comfort to me as I left this position months later, being sure to tell my clients that it was not their fault, but that adults get tired sometimes and that I was really tired. In fact, I was so tired that I had begun to disassociate in unpredictable and dangerous moments like driving. More and more people in my life, including my mechanic, had noticed my blank expressions, the defeat on my face when convincing myself that my job was still meaningful, and my inability to talk about anything future-related because my present was so unbearable. Heartbroken, I put in my six weeks notice in March 2017. And a little over a month later, I went on a month-long trip to South America with my boyfriend at the time, Tom Berna, hoping that I would be refreshed and healed. We returned back to the U.S. newly engaged in early summer 2017, and I got a safe job back at the preschool. I had every intention of listening to my body instead of denying my own needs. 
I was going to take my life back and catch up on self-care, and everything was going to be okay now. I wish I could tell you that things were that simple, and this story ends there, but it does not. In June 2017, three months after leaving that traumatic job, like textbook clockwork, the post-traumatic stress set in. And I started having intrusive thoughts that something was horribly wrong. I felt like I had lost a part of myself that was irrecoverable. I tried to have deep and connecting conversations with friends, especially about my new engagement, and I felt nothing. I felt disconnected from my closest friends, my fiance, and myself. My body began to get triggered with terror multiple times a day when there was no sign of actual danger. No one was yelling at me. It even happened on sunny days in Pittsburgh. I couldn't connect to others or myself, and I couldn't feel safe. My thoughts began, began to become so anxious and panicked that I had to stop all caffeine intake. I was scared of everything especially how disconnected I felt from myself and my body. My mind focused on lies and shame and attacked my newly, newly engaged relationship with Tom. I was supposed to be feeling bliss. So what the hell was wrong with me? The messages of purity culture from my past that I thought I had worked through already fanned the flame and I began to shut down and became deeply depressed while pretending with most people that everything was okay. The thought that felt safest at the time was to leave Pittsburgh and everything behind without any explanation. I was in full-out flight mode, and I was convinced that that little light of mine in the children's song had been blown out deep inside by the devil. That I was bad to my core, and that Tom deserved someone who could love him without fear. These intrusive thoughts and lies started to fill my mind and continued to attack my relationship with Tom. I was terrified that I wouldn't feel connected to myself on my wedding day. How do you make a lifelong promise when you feel nothing but fear to your core? Tom's hugs and deep love and listening helped me not to act on the fear and move far away. But the emotional distance I felt with everyone around me was killing me. And in the midst of all of this, though, somewhere deeper down than my nervous system, I stubbornly believed that God had brought Tom and I together for a reason. Before we were together, no one could really see how much a toll the classroom job was taking on me. Tom had already been a part of God's voice of truth, telling me that I was loved enough and allowed to leave that situation. I had deeply believed this before the PTSD had kicked in. Midsummer 2017, I found a counselor of my own and began telling the truth about it all. She held space for me for eight months as I slowly approached my wedding day, set for St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 2018. For about seven of those months, I was still terrified that what I had lost inside wouldn't return. That I had waited too long before caring for myself that I was so traumatized that not only would I not be able to get married, but that I wouldn't be able to stabilize and hold space for others and actually lose my use my credentials as an art therapist and licensed professional counselor. In January 2018, I penned the words to the song, Leave It in the Water, 
that I have shared at the open door a few times before. I often play it during Lent because it has the tone of lament. For me, the words connect the ideas of Christ's invitation to let our old patterns, our pain, and the lies we believe to literally drown in the waters of our baptism and trust that there is true healing and hope when we emerge from these waters. Don and I are gonna play this song at the end of the service today. And I invite you to listen to the words anew as I, as I have now shared with you the context. The first verse followed by the chorus reads, my sin, my shame, my regret, my pain, my hurting soul, reclaim the soil. Till the ground, O Lord, my crown, and when I'm found, hallelujah's round. Leave it in the water, he said. Leave it in the water, children. Leave it in the water. Death is drowned in the water. In February 2018, I was given a divine gift of some much-needed relief from the intensity of those intrusive lies in my head. I chose to trust my fiance, my community, and my God, and I rode a month-long wave of partial healing and stubborn belief that the events set in motion were safe and good. That wave, when it peaked, brought me before God and many witnesses to say, I do, while feeling fully connected to those words, myself, Tom, and that promise. I married the love of my life on March 17, 2018, and our joy was full that day when the sun was even out. In fall 2018, after about six months of marriage, I was still healing from the PTSD, but much had already been redeemed in myself. I remember attending a weekend retreat with my therapist and many other human pastors in need of healing and respite. I told them my story and my fear that my little light had been blown out since I was still having trouble feeling it. A female pastor who described her closeness with Jesus Christ as a playful relationship, like knowing him like a Huckleberry Finn type, looked at me with her warm, deep blue eyes full of wisdom and said, that is impossible. I believed her and slowly I began to get back in touch with that little spark inside of me that is that little light. Not so dissimilar from what I had observed five years prior with the lightning bugs. Today is about four and a half years past that retreat and my joy continues to increase. That light that I feel inside is ablaze with gratitude, often, and my body remembers what it is to feel connected and safe again. There's even new life growing inside of me in the form of our first child, a son. The bridge to my song, Made For More, cries out to God. It's your beauty that leads me to the floor. It's your kindness that tells me what this life is for. We're made for more. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. And thank you. <coughs>
for today is um, a very long one, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's John chapter 11, and there it is on the screen, 1 through 6, 17, and I'll read a little bit more later. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters went, uh, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness was, will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there. He stayed where he was two more days. And when he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And then he said, let us go back to Judea. But, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble. But they see by this world's light, it is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, I'm giggling at myself right now because I'm going to talk about a sermon um, that I preached in 2004. And the hilarious thing is, I remember we were at the uh, we were at Belfield, and I came up to preach this. It was the first sermon I'd ever preached for the world. And I came up and I looked at the stand. And I left all my notes somewhere. And today, either Renee or Rebecca walked away with my notes today. <laughs> there it is. So what are the chances? <laughs> Thank you. Probably could have done this without, but... Wow, can dry, <laughs> can dry bones really live is the question we ask when we read that Ezekiel passage. When we think about Lazarus, can the dead really be raised from the grave? Can creation be restored? Can you and I find healing and hope from our failures, our wounds? Our work as a church, as the Open Door Presbyterian Church, has been in many ways 
about creating passageways toward this kind of hope. Hope that in the face of the most difficult times we can imagine, um, hope that, that we can hold on to, even in the most difficult times we can imagine. So that very first sermon that I preached at the Open Door 2004 was on Isaiah 61. And that sermon began with this line, hope, it's not an easy thing to hold on to these days. At that time, we were just three years from 9-11. Now, how many years are we from 9-11? All the way. Three years from 9-11, we were in the midst of two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were many of us becoming more aware of the ecological devastation that a consumer economy was wreaking on our planet. It seems hope is always accompanied by, by mourning. And at that time, there was a lot of mourning happening in the United States. It's only when we work through our mourning that we might find hope. And so today, it's 20, nearly 20 years later, and it's no different, is it? Hope, it's not an easy thing to hold on to. An IPCC report came out just this week. I always say raise your hand when I want to know if anybody knows something. Does anybody know IPCC stands for? International Panel on Climate Change? Yes. <laughs> The International Panel on Climate Change, it's part of the UN. And this is their sixth report. Their sixth report, six years, I think six years in a row. And it's the final report on the state of global climate change. And there's been like two seconds worth of news about this report. Not enough, not nearly enough. I highly recommend Go Google it, the sixth report. There's a, a, a synthesis of it that's 36 pages. And it's really, really important. You can read uh, news on like CNN and get a snippet. It's not worth it. Just go to the synthesis. A quote from the synthesis. The whole report's about 86 pages. Um, but a quote from the synthesis, it says, widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, which is the polar, uh, uh, polar caps, polar ice caps, the cryosphere and biosphere have occurred. So we're no longer saying could occur, might occur, will occur, no, it's what has occurred. We can, we can talk about climate change as what happened already, not what's going to happen. Human-caused climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region of our, of our globe. This has led to widespread adverse impacts and related losses and damages to nature and people. Vulnerable communities who have historically contributed the least to current climate change are disproportionately affected. This sounds like some really bad news to me. 
The report goes on and makes clear what we've done to the planet and what's going to happen. But even in this report, there's hope. Nearly everything we need to begin the full-scale, complete transition of our society, our globe, away from carbon-emitting economies, is already available. It's already, we, we know the answers. People like Catherine <laughs> have done the work. It, the research is done. There's more to be done, right? We can, we can keep going. <laughs> Always. But the answers are already before us. They're being deployed, but not fast enough. There's reason for hope because we know how to solve the problem and so many other problems that our world faces. The problem isn't technical. The problem is human sin. We all need hope because we don't know the ending of the story. I, I don't think our ending has been written yet. Hope is believing in a better future even in the face of present despair. Throughout the scripture, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' divinity is made clear. So if we read the whole thing, Jesus continues to kind of see in the future, and it seems he knows what's going to happen. He's got everything planned out. In some ways, his divinity seems to be made pretty clear. But we also have hints of his humanity. In this scripture, one of the, it might be one of the greatest examples, greatest stories of Jesus' divinity coming out. I mean, he raises a guy from the dead in the end of this story, right? Jesus knows the future, seems to exist outside of time. But on the other hand, Jesus weeps later in this story. And we'll read that verse in a few minutes at the very end. Jesus weeps. And the gospel writer says he is greatly distressed. Maybe Jesus wept because in his full humanness, he needed, like you and I, to have hope. Jesus needed to have hope. Jesus wept for his friend his, and his sisters and their friends. Jesus wept for them in their suffering. I think Jesus wept because... Jesus was human, fully, fully human. He mourned and needed hope as much as you and I do. Hope is only necessary when we don't know the ending, right? The quality of God is that God is beyond time and space. We believe God knows the ending. But you and I are bound to time and space. Therefore, we can't fully know the ending. That's why we need hope. According to our theology about Jesus, our Christology, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human. And sometimes we separate those things and we say, on one hand, he's over here fully human, and 
But somehow, and God is both fully human and fully God at the same time, in the same place. And we can't explain that way. What it is to be human is to be bound in time and space and therefore to have a need for hope. So John in this passage presents an image of Jesus that I'm most drawn to. The Jesus who needs hope. The Jesus who cries for his friend. This is an image of Jesus that I think we can relate to as humans. Because Jesus was one of us. This is the image of a Savior that I think we need most. One who mourned with us, was in despair with us, and had hope on our behalf. Jesus was suffering in this passage and needed hope. In both Ezekiel and John, we see a situation where there is no reason to have hope, right? Death has set in. Skeletons don't find new life. In that sermon in 2004, I said that because of our faith in Jesus, we can have hope that is unrealistic. Unrealistic hope is what Jesus had. Unrealistic hope is what God told Ezekiel he could have. Unrealistic hope is for those who have faith in God. Unrealistic hope is a word that ends conversation for those who, who don't have faith. I mean, you use the word unrealistic in a conversation at work. It ends the conversation. Here's what I want to do. That's unrealistic. <laughs> but for those of us who are being saved, unrealistic hope is the ultimate hope that pushes us to continue to work in the world, toward a world that we so long for. I still long for healing and restoration. In our mourning and sorrow, can we have hope that pushes us still to action? Even as we mourn the reality of our world, can we have hope because we don't yet know the ending? It hasn't been written yet. John chapter 11 verse 33 continues on, a little beyond where we ended a minute ago. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus then began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying 
up against it. Reminds you of another man rising from the dead. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, look, already there's a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, I, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they might also believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews there, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. I have to pause for a second. I wasn't going to say this part, but I'm going to because this is way too serious. I think this is one of the funniest scriptures also in the Gospels because, one, Mary says, Jesus he smells really bad. And think about this. Everything is kind of set up like Jesus rising from the dead. How many days did Jesus choose to be in the grave? Three. Lazarus was in for four. I think Jesus is like m making plans here and taking notes. I don't want to be coming out of the grave stinking this bad. And also, also, Lazarus comes out, and there's a huge crowd there, and he's got like, I mean, he's probably naked other than these strips of cloth all over him. Jesus rises, and there's an angel, right? And he has some time to like get himself ready. <laughs> so, I don't know, I had never thought of that before, but just reading it this week made that realization. Lazarus is raised from the dead and brings God glory. So today, when we remain in hope, and we work for it, we work tirelessly with hope, God will be glorified. Lazarus is raised from the dead and brings God glory. I believe God will act on our behalf when we continue to have hope and we continue to put that hope into action. Thank you for listening into the podcast. Of course, we'd love to see you on a Sunday morning at 1030. We worship at the Neighborhood Academy here in Pittsburgh. And all of our music is by our band, This Side of Eve, which you can find on uh, Apple Music and Spotify and um, also at our band camp site. All right. Have a really great 
um, Palm Sunday and Easter week. <laughs>